Please open your Bibles to Isaiah 38. Uh, today we are going to conclude our summer series here in the book of Isaiah. And as you're moving in that direction, I want to share with you a little story about the first time that I realized that I was mortal, that someday I was going to die. Uh, when I was 10 years old, I was at my grandparents' house in Kansas. And this house is built into a hill. Some of you may have seen the video. I sent a few of you uh, of their house when we visited earlier this year. It's, it's tall in the front, but the hill is so steep that the back of the house is actually underground. And when they had built this house, they had bulldozed a section of that earth and pushed the large boulders into a ravine. And that ravine was relatively steep in parts. And when I was 10 years old, I was told, do not go there. It is dangerous. You could get hurt. Well, as a 10-year-old and as my little brother being eight years old, we thought that looked like the greatest place in the world to be. So to my shame, I dishonored my father and my grandfather, and I disobeyed them, and I went where I was told not to go. And as we were playing amongst these large boulders, uh, we did not intend to, but we started a miniature landslide, and my brother was at the top of the landslide, and I was at the bottom. Now, I've seen movies before where people outrun landslides or avalanches or things like that. Let me tell you, that is not real. That is all Hollywood. You cannot escape. Once that ground breaks loose, you don't have even the time to turn around, as noted by the fact that one of the boulders moved about 12 feet in my direction and rolled on top of me and crushed me. As I was lying there, under this boulder, which covered from the chin, from my chin down to about my kneecaps, crushing the life out of me, I believed for the first time in my life that I could die and that I would die. And as I was lying there, I could not breathe. I had no ability to get any air into my lungs because of the weight pressing out. And for a moment, I began silently praying. And I remember praying, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Lord, help me. And then my prayer changed to, and I've, I've actually never told anybody this before in my life. I think I was ashamed of it as a kid. I began praying, Lord, kill me. Lord, kill me. Because the pain was so excruciatingly horrible. And I really believed in that moment I was going to close my eyes and see the Lord and be with him in heaven. Then, by the grace of God, the ground beneath my shoulders broke loose. Not entirely sure why. My grandfather thinks there was probably a burrow of some kind of varmints that lived there, whether they were moles or gophers or something of that nature, which loosened the soil enough for it to break free and for my upper body to kind of fall into a bit of a cave. And when that happened, I began to breathe. And I stopped praying, and I began screaming. <laughs> I began with all of the pressure I could get into my lungs to release it in the form of agonizing pleas for help. My father and my grandfather ran from the house and they ran down into this ravine and they began rolling the stone with all of their adrenaline off of my body. Uh, by the grace of God, I had zero broken bones, although I was bruised from head to toe. Literally, literally places that didn't even get covered for some reason were covered in black and blue. Um, the next day, my grandfather went there with his tractor, his handy-dandy John Deere, and could not budge that stone. It was so heavy. So I can tell you that I was terrified, and I can tell you that something changed in me that day 
where I realize that death is very real. And I realize for the first time that someday I will not be able to escape whatever it is that is crushing the life out of me. And from that day forward, I think something in me changed. But oftentimes, I forget the fact that I'm going to die. And I can tell you that it's not every day that I realize that I am mortal, that I am eventually going to breathe my last. Earlier this year, I was back in that place, and I walked along that ravine, and I looked down into it, and I couldn't determine which one of those boulders was it that was on top of me. Which one of those stones was it that was laying on my chest? Now, I wanted to go down and kind of dig around, but I had learned better, and there was also poison ivy everywhere, so I, I decided better that I would stay away. But it's interesting to note that in that moment, I realized the only way out was prayer. And even as a 10-year-old, I knew that pushing and, or shoving or trying to dig my way out was impossible. There was literally, I could not move my arms. They were crushed completely underneath of this stone. And the only thing I could do was to pray. And interestingly, the only thing that could help me is the thing that did help me was the Lord. All accounts say that I should have died that day. But the Lord was gracious to me and kind to me and allowed me to escape the face of death. And seeing the face of death up close, I think, reveals your heart, not necessarily to anyone else, but it, it reveals your heart to you. It tells you what's going on in your own heart. Even in the vicinity of death, being near it can bring us genuine clarity about our own spiritual state. Your faith will never be more tested than when you are preparing to cross that great river of death where you can't see the other side. Today, we're going to see the story of Hezekiah come to a conclusion. We are going to see face-to-face -face the reality he experienced when he realized he was mortal. We see him when his body was weak and when his faith was strong. And then later, we're going to see when his body was strong and his faith was weak. So I would ask that now we, we pray that the Lord would give us a real sense of who we are and what we are called to do in this life. Let's pray. Father, help us today to number our days. Help us to be wise in realizing that we are here for a moment. We are a vapor that is quickly fading. Lord, I pray that you would help us to recognize that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Lord, there are things that are eternal, and our souls are eternal. Lord, help us to understand that the things around us, the things that we pursue, the things that we delight in are so small and insignificant compared to the weight of glory waiting in eternity for us. So, Father, I, help you that, I, I pray that you would help us today to rightly examine the reality of our world around us and our own lives so that we might rightly treasure Jesus above all things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Before we dive into our outline this morning, I want to try our best to figure out what is going on in the timeline of this story. These two chapters that we're looking at, chapters 38 and 39, are not in chronological order. These events take place when Hezekiah, in verse 38, or chapter 38, when he was young, probably 35, 33 to 35 years old. He had relatively uh, recently become the king of Judah, and at this time, he had no heir that was going to take the throne after his, his death. This is probably the first really big trial of his reign. 
The story does not occur after the attacks of Sennacherib that we learned about last week. Rather, this occurs 15 years before those attacks took place. So this is kind of the backstory. This is telling you why Hezekiah was even alive to trust the Lord when the city was being besieged. And not only that, but even within the chapter, there are some strange occurrences where there are difficult questions about where we should understand certain verses to fit within the narrative timeline. Let's go ahead and try to fit this puzzle together right now so that as we go through the text, you'll be able to understand really well what we're reading. Jump down to verse 22. It says, Hezekiah also had said, what is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? Note the words, had said. In other words, this is telling you this is not present tense. This is something that happened earlier in the story. So the question is, where does this sentence, where does this question fit? And here's my suggestion, and I'm leaning on the smart guys out there here, the intelligent scholars. They would argue, and I would believe them as well, that this verse should fit right before verse 7. Look at verse 7. It says, This shall be the sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do this thing that he has promised. Now Hezekiah asks what the sign is going to be, and then the Lord says, here is your sign. So verse 22 naturally fits right before verse 7. Now look down to verse 21, which says, Now Isaiah said, Let them take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that he might recover. This was a divinely inspired medical remedy for Hezekiah's illness that we will explore this morning. And as we know, the Lord used this to cause him to recover. But we see in verse 9 that it says, a writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after he had been sick and had recovered from his sickness. So we are supposed to understand this poetic layout in such a way that we realize verse 21 chronologically lands right before verse 9. So I hope that helps you. When you read this, it might seem a little jumbled, but that's where these pieces fit. So now, with the timeline snugly in our minds, let's consider our approach to the passage. For the sake of simplicity today, we are going to look at the following events through three main categories. First, we're going to consider Hezekiah's problem, then we will consider Hezekiah's prayer, and finally, we will see his downfall by considering Hezekiah's pride. We begin with Hezekiah's problem. Follow along in chapter 38, verse 1. It says, In those days... Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. Now it's unclear exactly what sickness Hezekiah was experiencing. However, we can discover some of the symptoms later on in the chapter. Verse 21, as we've already read, tells us that there was some kind of a boil on his body that was festering. It was probably something that was the visible source of an internal problem. Verse 13 through 14 says, I calmed myself until morning like a lion. He breaks all of my bones. From day to night, you bring me to an end. Like a swallow or a crane, I chirp. I moan like a dove. My eyes are weary with looking upward. Oh Lord, I am oppressed be my pledge of safety. So here in the way that he is writing, it seems as though he was laid out on his back, constantly looking in the direction of the ceiling. 
And it seems as though his bones, even the deepest part of him, was feeling a constant pain and pressure. This man was suffering. He was clearly in massive physical agony. But there was also a great sorrow that accompanied the notion of dying in the prime of his life. Verse 10 says, I said in the middle of my days, I must depart. I am consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. In other words, right now, when I should be living twice this long, right in the middle of my life, I'm going to die. Throughout the passage, we see him sorrowful. He is mourning. He is weeping. And if the Lord told you that you are going to die, I think you would probably respond in a very similar way, and so would I. Death is truly the last enemy to be destroyed, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians. It is an uncomfortable thing to stare into the teeth of the monster of death. And Hezekiah was deeply troubled, knowing that all his plans, all his hopes, all of his desires, all of his exciting ideas for what he could do as the king were now completely going to come to an end because his life was soon to end. Now, I'm sure that those words rang in his ears every hour of every day. Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. It's one thing to receive that kind of a diagnosis from your doctor. Hey, listen, I hope you need to go get your will ready. You, you need to make sure that your house is taken care of, that you've got your insurance all finalized. You need to make sure that your family knows what to do because you're not going to make it. It's one thing to get that diagnosis from a physician. It is quite a different thing when you hear that from the God of the universe, the one who holds all things in his hands, the one who has all power and all knowledge of everything, past, present, and future. When he says this, it is a different story. You shall not recover. You shall not recover. You shall not recover, Hezekiah. It's very interesting that this king, out of all of the kings that reigned over Judah, this king is the one that is given this illness. He is referred to in the Bible on seven occasions as being devoted to the Lord. In fact, it refers to him as walking with God, which is only used of six other people in the Old Testament. And they are all some of the most godly men that we find in those pages. This man was a righteous man when we look at him in terms of his faith. He trusted the Lord. He was not one of the wicked kings of all of the kings of Israel, all 19 of Judah. All of the ones in Israel were bad. In Judah, there were five that were good, and this man stands as one of the best of them. Yet, this man is the one who received this illness. Do you remember his father, Ahaz? Ahaz was deeply wicked, yet he didn't get the disease. What about Rehoboam that set their entire nation, Judah, on the track of, of idolatry? Well, he didn't receive this disease, or any of the others who ruled over Judah. None of those who caused idolatry to blossom like dandelions in March. No, they, they didn't receive this disease, but it was Hezekiah, this godly man. And the question is, why does God allow Hezekiah to suffer like this? And the answer is, only the Lord truly knows. We will see some hints in this text, but we don't truly have a full sense of what's going on in the heavenlies. God allowed Hezekiah to suffer, and in the midst of the suffering, explained that this illness is going to be terminal. Look, Hezekiah, you're going to die. He could not and would not, naturally speaking, survive. Now, the Bible teaches us a lot about the nature of death, but it also teaches us about how Christians are supposed to approach it. When death is at hand, we learn how we are supposed to breathe our last when we look to our Savior. We see how Jesus, when he was nearing the very end of his life, 
said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He teaches us how to die well. We know that it is not death to die, and that on the other end of this suffering, there is going to be a loving welcome from King Jesus. So we have a sense of how we deal with death, but how do we deal with the illness that we know is going to eventually get us there? How do we respond spiritually to to that? How do we respond uh, physically, and how do we respond in our own nature? How do we respond rightly? I bet that COVID has caused many of us to consider our mortality, at least on some level. It's helped us to number our days. I hope that it's helped you to think about what it would mean to put your house in order, to get everything set just in case something were to occur and you were to pass away. But how should we view illness? Does God indicate that God is cursing us? Does he indicate that we have failed him, so now he is going to set this blight upon us? The Lord God has given us the entire book of Job to help us understand that there may never be an explanation of why we suffer. In fact, if you read through the book of Job, it seems as though Job never understood at all what we the readers see. He never knew that conversation between Satan and the Lord. He never understood what was taking place in the heavenly realms behind the scenes. It seems as though he went to his grave only knowing this, the Lord allowed me to suffer, but the Lord is good. So we don't always know why illness comes. We don't always understand the cause of our suffering. Job certainly didn't understand it, and it seems that neither did Hezekiah. However, on the other end, Hezekiah was able to declare, behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness. Later, as he records his prayer, he he reveals that I'm looking back, realizing that all that God did, that I, I believed was for ill, was truly for my benefit. Now, we know that the Lord is gracious and merciful. And James 5 teaches us that we can pray for the sick and they will be healed. But we also learn from the life of Paul that not everyone who receives prayer for their illness will actually recover. Not every prayer for healing is answered in the affirmative. The great apostle healed and even restored life to the dead. Yet when he had a thorn in his own flesh, and he says that he prayed three times that the Lord would remove it, the father did not remove it. When there was this cause of what seems to be physical pain, he prayed three times. Now, I don't take this to mean he prayed three times in 30 seconds. I think this means there were three occasions of pouring out his heart before the Lord for a long period of time saying, God, I don't know if I can continue, if this is the suffering I will experience. And yet, the Lord does not say, you're right, Paul. I will take that away right now. Let me get on that. Instead, the Lord answers Paul this way. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. Not my healing. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with my weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In other words, we should consider our response to the problem of sickness in being to be in line with what we see happening with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Do you remember when they were going to be thrown into the furnace? What did they say? They said, our God can save us. But even if he doesn't, we will not bow down. In a very similar way, we pray saying, our God can heal us. 
But even if he doesn't, we will worship him. When your own body is experiencing the curse of sin, it can bring you to the end of yourself and cause you to realize just how desperate you really are for the strength of the Lord. It's like me trying to push off that boulder. Impossible. I can't move it. All I can do is call to the Lord, and it reveals that I am desperate. But I was just as desperate 10 minutes earlier, and I am just as desperate now, and so are you. I think we are supposed to see that this is one of the things that caused Hezekiah to have great faith during the time of the siege in Jerusalem. How is it that he could stand against this great army that was by all reason going to sweep in and wipe them out? He stood in that because he had already been standing in faith as he had seen the Lord faithfully work through this great illness 15 years earlier. Both times his life was threatened. Both times his kingly line would have been brought to an end. And both times we see him trust in the Lord with all of his heart. So let's move to verse or point two, Hezekiah's prayer. Look at verse two. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. This was not a simple, now I lay me down to sleep kind of praying. It was an intense pleading with God. Please, Lord. Take this pain away from me. Now we see that his prayers were accompanied by intermittent bouts of, of weeping. Perhaps you are experiencing sickness. Perhaps you are experiencing suffering of some other kind. And, and there are times when all you can do is, is pray and cry because you realize, I am in deep sorrow. The Lord hears your cries. It says in a moment that he sees Hezekiah's tears. We need to be cautious not to misinterpret his prayer here to mean that he is standing on his own righteousness. It almost sounds like that, right? God, look at me. Look what I've done. I have followed you in righteousness. I have walked in your ways. Why are you doing this to me? If we're not careful, we will interpret that to say God answered his prayer because of his works, which is not the case here, nor is it the case anywhere in Scripture. God does not respond to you because he is pleased by the way that you lived this day as compared to yesterday. God does not enter his prayers in some kind of a fickle, uh, pass or fail kind of manner. It is not a grade by the curve or grade on any kind of scale other than whether or not he desires for the sake of his own will to hear you and answer you. Because he will always do what is best for you. But you don't always know what is best for you. So when you pray, Oftentimes, you are asking for the wrong things, even if you feel as though you are asking for the right ones. So always pray that the Lord's will would be done. But I want you to see that this is not a cry of, Lord, see my righteousness. Rather, this is a display of faith because the Lord had made promises to the nation of Israel as well as to the kings in commands throughout the books of the law. And in those commands, we see that as the Lord commands the kings, he also gives promises for how he would respond if they would lead the nation in righteousness. So it seems that this is what he is calling back to. For example, a simple example can be found in 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 9. Here what's taking place is that David is speaking to his son Solomon, who is just about to take the throne. David is ancient. He's just about to die. And he is telling Solomon how you can serve the Lord and be blessed by the Lord by living as a righteous king. And he says in verse 9, You, Solomon, my son, know that the God of your fa- know the God of your father and serve him 
with a whole heart and a willing mind. This is exactly what Hezekiah is referencing. And for the Lord searches the heart and understands every plan and thought. All of the blessings spoken about afterward that were to accompany Solomon's reign were all grounded in this promise. You must, Solomon, serve the Lord with your whole heart. And you see that when he does, blessings abound for him. And when he does not, the Lord disciplines him in the later stages of his life. What we see happening here with Hezekiah is he is not looking at his own righteousness and saying, God, for the sake of my goodness, you need to save me from this sickness. He is looking at the Lord and saying, God, you have promised that if I do this, then you will respond with blessings. So here what he is doing is calling on the Lord and trusting in his promises rightly. Verse 4, then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, go and say to Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city. This is definitely one of the most bizarre stories in scripture, in my opinion. It seems so strange because upon first glimpse, it appears as though God changes his mind. Hezekiah, you're going to die. Hezekiah, you know what? I'm going to add 15 years to your life. This is a strange text, when in reality, God is not changing his mind at all. In this text, Hezekiah is given a naturalistic diagnosis from the Lord. That is the initial word that he receives. According to medical realities, Hezekiah, according to human capabilities, you're going to die. There is nothing you can do to change that fact. There is nothing you can do to fix it. There is no doctor that will ever help you. There is no physician that you could ever find that will give you medicine that will assist you. You are going to suffer and you are going to die. You will not recover. But when Hezekiah prays, God does something that is supernatural. He, he supersedes the natural that he is experiencing. But it's not the kind of supernatural that you might expect. It actually comes from God giving a specific prescription, a fig cake of all things. And then that's going to be placed on your wound, and then you'll be healed. I do not take this to mean that someone in the same circumstances could just simply buy a bag of fig newtons and place that on their wound and expect the Lord to heal them. This is not a natural kind of healing. Regardless of what suffering he was experiencing, this is not a cure. In fact, according to most medical science, this would make it a lot worse. Yet he takes this cake made out of figs and he shoves it onto whatever that boil or wound was and the Lord caused that to work better than any vaccine or miracle cure that could be found on the market. The Lord had made it clear, apart from his involvement, earthly treatments would fail and Hezekiah would die. But we see that Hezekiah says, regardless of what is going on in the physical realities, I trust that God can do something great. Once again, we see that prayer changes things. And in particular, it extended Hezekiah's life for 15 years. And this is way more significant than just the fact that he got to breathe in and out for a couple more years. It has to do with the fact that as a king, he had no heir. There was no one born yet that would take the throne in his line. It was during those 15 years that his son Manasseh would be born. It is important to understand the line of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, came because of this prayer where he said, Lord, please, 
Spare my life. Be my safety. Give me grace. Ultimately, this prayer would culminate in the coming of the Messiah. God is faithful to answer prayers, especially we see in accordance with his will and to fulfill his promises. Consider now verse 7. This shall be the sign from you from the Lord that the Lord will do this thing that he has promised. Behold, I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the dial of Ahaz turn back ten steps. So the sun turned back on the dial the ten steps by which it had declined. Do you remember Hezekiah's father, Ahaz? We talked about him earlier this year. In the summer, uh, this summer, we learned from Gene's sermon that the Lord had offered Ahaz a sign in order to confirm the veracity of his prophecies. Do you remember when Isaiah came to him and said, what sign do you want from the Lord? He said, you know what? I don't really want a sign. I don't need a sign. That's fine. Just keep it. Just don't worry about it. I don't want whatever you're going to show me. Now, you could easily look at that and think, wow, that guy's super spiritual because he doesn't even need God to prove himself. But in reality, he is not showing his great faith. He is not showing that he trusted God so much that he didn't need a sign. Rather, he turned it down because he was trusting God so little that he was saying, no sign you give me could convince me that you are going to help me, so I'm going to turn to the nation of Assyria for assistance. Now we see that Hezekiah's trust in the Lord was doing exactly the opposite of what his father had done. He probably knew how his father had the opportunity for a sign and declined it, and therefore uh, Isaiah judged him harshly. So here he requests a sign. We read about that earlier on at the end of the chapter. And he says to the Lord, what sign should I expect from you that I will go back into the house of the Lord? In other words, because of his illness, he was unclean. He could not worship in the temple. What sign are you going to give me that I will once again be able to worship you in that place? And the Lord says, I'm going to make the sun go backwards on the sundial. Now, this is not a typical sundial that you're probably expecting. It's not like one of those big stone circles with the triangle in the corner that hippies put in their front yards, okay? This is a different kind of sundial that we see taking place in the ancient world. This was probably a staircase that was next to a wall, and they would use that to determine how many steps the sun goes down, or the shade goes down those steps equals how much time is left in the day. So when it said that it removed five steps of shade, well, that probably, or 10 steps, it probably means five hours backwards. Now, it is possible that the Lord actually reversed time for that amount of, uh, of the day, that he turned the earth and the sun in such a way that it was capable of changing the pattern of light. It is also possible that the Lord simply bent the light in a way that it does not naturally, oper naturally operate so that it would hit the right places on those stairs. Honestly, there's not enough information for us to even guess at exactly how the Lord did this miracle. All we know is that they went to the stairs, they looked at them, and God did exactly what he said he would do, showing him this sign is legit. So he believed, and he trusted that the Lord would indeed heal him. He put the fig cake on that boil, and we don't know how long it took, but seemingly, rather quickly, the Lord took away that suffering. Let's now look to part number three, Hezekiah's pride. Follow along, starting at the beginning of chapter 39. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that he had been sick and had recovered. 
And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly and showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? And from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, They've come to me from a far country, from Babylon. He said, what have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses I didn't show them. Then, Hezekiah, then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and, all, uh, and that which your fathers have stored up to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you whom you will father shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought there will be peace and security in my days. Oh, how quickly we forget the kindness of the Lord. As soon as Hezekiah recovered, a group of dignitaries show up from Babylon and they spoke with words of flattery. They give him a big present. Hezekiah brought, uh, bought their ruse. He saw them and thought, wow, this seems real. They seem kind. This far country. By the way, he says a far country. It's almost like he doesn't even know anything about Babylon. Who are those people? At this point in history, they're not a great nation yet. And he says, these guys seem real. They seem nice. They seem like maybe we could be friends. So he bought their ruse, lock, stock, and barrel, and he takes them around and shows them all the treasures of his kingdom. And this was certainly attempt, an attempt on his part to make himself look powerful. Oh, you guys don't look that great. L let me show you who we are. Let me show you how, how rich we are. Let me show you how powerful we are. Let me show you my strength and my greatness. And he sought to share with them his own glory. His tour held back nothing. He revealed all of their national treasures, their infrastructure, their weapons, I'm sure these guys are secretly taking notes. Oh, that looks like a good way to break into this city. Oh, we need to make sure that we get to this storeroom really quickly. This is where they keep all of their armor. Okay, we need to, we need to make sure that we have that well documented. He showed them everything. He showed the spies everything. And he was doing this in order to hear more oohs and ahs and words of flattery from them. He wanted his pride to be seen in is this what your life is like? Is this, is this the way that your life operates? Consider, consider what he doesn't do. He never once gives glory to God. He is healed from the sickness because of God's mercy. And he never once says to them when they come and say, hey, we see that you recovered from that, that thing that was going to kill you. He never says, well, to God be the glory. Let me tell you what God has done for me. And he does not say, the Lord has built this kingdom. The Lord has preserved us. The Lord has redeemed us. The Lord brought us out of Egypt. The Lord built this great wealth. The Lord has done mighty things. The Lord has been our protection. He has been the one who has shielded us from all of our enemies. He does not give God one ounce of credit in all that he says to them. Rather, he says, look at me, look at me, look at me when he see, they see his stuff. That strong faith that he had in the Lord one chapter earlier seems to completely evaporate and is left behind in something that is so small that it's hardly noticeable, if at all. Is this what your life is like? Are you just going through a series of difficult times when your faith feels strong and you call out to the Lord, 
Lord, I need you. I am desperate. And then as soon as he answers, you just forget. He shows himself merciful and kind. He shows himself faithful to you in the way that he, he hears you and he cares for your life. And then he just is forgotten. You take God and you put him in your back pocket and wait till the next tragedy to call on him. Is this what your life is like? Isaiah explains that his sin of pride led him to foolishly cause the downfall of Israel. Consider the fact that it's not Assyria who's going to overtake you. Fifteen years later, the Assyrians looked like they were going to win, but he says to Hezekiah, look, those guys aren't going to defeat this city, but guess what? Everything that you have shown them, they are going to walk out of here with it in a wheelbarrow, and there's nothing you can do to stop it. The Lord has spoken, and then Hezekiah says, we see the, the pinnacle of his, his selfishness. He says, that sounds good because it's not going to happen when I'm alive. It'll just happen to whoever's alive at that point. That is a great form of arrogance. I don't know how to read that charitably. There are some people who have argued that, well, maybe he was just saying, just like I had a chance to repent back one chapter earlier, and I, I had a chance to call out to the Lord, maybe God will give them a chance and they will have the ability to, to turn and to be healed from this uh, attack from the Babylonians. I don't think that's what's going on here. I think that this is a real look into the heart of a real person who is a real sinner. And I think, honestly, you and I would have the same kind of response. It does not say that he said that this was for the sake of his peace in his days to Isaiah. It says that he thought this in his mind. He thought, well, as long as it doesn't happen to me, as long as I don't taste the consequences, that's okay. This is a natural response of a human heart. We're happy as long as we can avoid consequences. But Hezekiah reveals to us that we need a greater king than him. We need a king who is not coming to avoid the consequences, but one who is actually undeserving of consequences and willing to accept them. We have a king who came, who unlike Hezekiah, did not deserve suffering, did not deserve death, who did not deserve to have all of the things taken from him. All Jesus had left was his clothes, and they tore those away and gambled for them. Jesus was willing to lose everything and to look little. He didn't come boasting in his power. He didn't come saying, look at the storehouses of, the, of, of heaven where you see my riches stored. No, he came lowly in an appearance that we would not look at him and see anything glorious. We, he looked like any other guy. And he lived in such a way that he was in poverty. He says, the birds have nests and foxes have dens, but I have no place to lay my head. Jesus allowed himself to look weak in the eyes of the world. He did not come boastfully like Hezekiah. And when it came down to the consequences, Jesus said, I will take yours. I have nothing to pay for, but I will take yours. Brothers and sisters, we have a good king better than Hezekiah. We have the king Hezekiah was looking to that healed him and saved him. So I call out to you today, do not be like Hezekiah, that when you hear the Lord, when you see his hand at work and you see your prayers answered, do not quickly forget. We don't need to go through a roller coaster of tragedy in order to continue to see his hand in play. Live even in the days of strength, trusting in his hand to guide you and lead you and give him the glory at all times. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you asking that you would help us. Lord, there are some, as we have already prayed, 
who are experiencing suffering of various kinds in this church. We pray, Lord, that in this season you would give them deep faith. But, Lord, I pray for every person here who is not experiencing suffering, that you would give us deep faith. Help us to trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.